Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, afternoon, and evening from wherever you are listening. I'm your host, Ujan, and welcome to New Books in South Asia. Today we have with us Professor Partho Chatterjee, and we will discuss with him uh, his most recent book, The Truth and Lies of Nationalism, as narrated by Charbak. The book is published, the book is published in South Asia by Permanent Black, and the US edition is published by State University of New York Press. Professor Chatterjee needs no introduction. He is one of the most preeminent political theorists of South Asia and one of the foremost intellectual historians of the Global South. Over his career, Professor Chatterjee has written several works, many of which have gone on to be defining contributions in the field of nationalism, anti-colonial thought, and subaltern histories. Some of his books include Nationalist Thought and the Colonial World, The Nation and Its Fragments, A Princely Imposter, the Politics of the Governed, and the Black Hole of Empire. Professor Chatterjee had previously served as the Director for the Center for Studies in Social Sciences Calcutta and is currently a professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies, MISAS, at the University of Columbia. Professor Chatterjee, it is an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so let's start with um, our first question, as is the tradition in New Books Network is uh, biographical. So can you please tell us a bit about how you came to write this book in particular, but more broadly about your intellectual journey? Well, the intellectual journey is quite long because uh, I began, you could say, um, as a political scientist, uh, I did a PhD at the University of Rochester, uh, which was in those days, this is uh, way back, 1968 to 71. So in those days, uh, University of Rochester political science was the leading department in what later came to be known as rational choice theory. So it was, uh, I mean, the main leading figure there was someone called Professor William Riker, and he is known as the one of the pioneers of uh, rational choice theory uh, in political science. So a lot of it was uh, based on or used um, not just empirical uh, quantitative methods, but in fact, uh, mathematical models, uh, a large part being use of game theoretic models. So in fact, that's the kind of work I began doing. Uh, And my dissertation was really on uh, the structure of international politics. It had to do with things like the balance of power with nuclear deterrence, those kinds of things. And I used a fair amount of game theory. Uh, And none of it had anything to do with South Asia at that point of time. So then I chose uh, not to stay in the U.S. I went back to India. Uh, 
uh, I went back to India in 1972. Uh, and after a brief period of teaching in the Punjab, in Amritsar, in fact, I joined uh, the Center for Studies in Social Sciences, which, which just was established in 73. And I was one of the earliest uh, uh, members of the faculty there. Uh, and uh, this was a um, institution which really shaped, you could say, my uh, intellectual journey subsequently, because uh, this um, this center was, uh, there were several leading historians, political economists, those were the two leading disciplines in that, that uh, institution. And a lot of them were interested in things like colonialism, the evolution of uh, agrarian uh, economies in the colonial period uh, with uh, the state and development planning, those kinds of issues, which were in many ways crucial to um, the development of the field of South Asian studies in the 1970s and 80s. And so my association with these uh, colleagues, and I was then only in my middle 20s then, uh, so I was uh, largely shaped um, in, in my next phase of work by the uh, association, by my association with these people. So I, I moved to the study of agrarian structure in Bengal. Uh, and then that uh, took me to, uh, in fact, collaborate with someone called Hitesh uh, Shannal, who unfortunately passed away at a very young age, uh, who was doing this work on oral histories of uh, participants in the national movement. Uh, so I would, uh, I teamed up with him and we spent usually, you know, 10 to 15 days every month uh, you know, spending our time in, in the deep uh, interiors of rural Bengal. Uh, and I, we did that for three or four years. And that, in, in many ways, shaped my uh, both my knowledge uh, as well as my relation to, uh, to the rural uh, part of, especially Bengal, which is the part I do best. So that, in a sense led me to the study of nationalism, uh, to, which is a very large part of, my, uh, of the following uh, period of my work. Uh, and then the critical view of the Indian state, etc. cetera. Uh, that's where everything else followed from. A particular book, you asked me about this particular book. Uh, the, now, this particular book, of course, you have to remember, I'm not the author of this book. <laughs> I'm only the editor who has produced an English version. You know, the author of the book is someone, some mysterious figure um, who calls himself a, a skeptic. I think that's an important uh, you know, factor to keep in mind. Uh, and secondly, this is a person who uh, does not seem to have any familiarity with, with modern social science. And so the kinds of social science categories that we usually uh, use all the time, uh, you won't find any of these in, in that text. 
So in a sense, uh, this text deals with a lot of issues that uh, social scientists and historians also deal with. But the angle uh, and the approach is, is different because, in fact, the conceptual terms are different. So I think that is one of the things I suspect should be of interest in this book. Uh, how does, uh, how, you know, how do many of these fairly commonly discussed questions, such as secularism, such as nationalism, uh, federation, uh, democracy, uh, Hindutva, how do all of these things look when one is not using the usual concepts of social science? Yes. <clears throat> So my next question would be about, this could have been any manuscript, right? But this is one by Charbak. And so what is Charbak's uh, position in Indian philosophical thought? Um, and why the choice of Charbak is, do you think is particularly telling? No, there are two things. One is, of course, the skepticism. Mm, he describes himself as a skeptic, someone who does not, uh, accept any of the usual, um, you know, uh, so-called truths, which most people hold to be true, uh, he would subject each of these uh, commonsensical truths uh, to scrutiny. So that is one aspect. And the secondly, second thing, obviously, Charbak, uh, Char- I mean, the very name Charbak in, in the uh, philosophical history of of India is associated with a school of thought which is very strongly anti-Brahminical. So, whereas Indian philosophy is, you would say, is almost completely dominated by uh, Brahmin uh, thinkers and scholars and so on, it is, a, you might say, a completely Brahminical body of thought. Uh, Charvak, to the extent that we know anything about this uh, uh, tradition of philosophy or this school of philosophy as it's often described uh, is is very strongly uh, opposed to, to that. Uh, and so in a sense, what uh, this narrator uh, symbolizes is a, an approach or a, a view of Indian nationalism, not from the standpoint of those who claim to be the leaders of the nation, but rather from the standpoint of those who have been ruled, who have been dominated, who have been marginalized. Uh, that's the position that Charvak would be expected to uh, to uphold. Right. And Charvak has a very um, disapproving voice, so to speak, that comes out uh, in his writing. Um, my next question would be on the first um, very provocative um, chapter title that Charbak gives, uh, All Nations Are Modern. And we know that in the past 10, 20, 30 years, we have a very dominant idea of a unified nation that has been handed down to us from our Vedic forefathers. And that's the standard official um, public view of the Indian state now. But Tarbuck says that that's just not possible. And can you tell us a bit why? You see, this I would say it's not just the last 30 years. You know, the last 30 years or so, when what we talk about the 
more recent kind of Hindu nationalist kind of more explicitly Hindu nationalist uh, politics, which of course has become dominant in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. But I would say this view of uh, India, India being an ancient nation uh, with this golden age, which begins with the Vedic period, right? Uh, this has been around for certainly from the late 19th century onwards. You might say that it is uh, it is almost the same age as uh, Indian nationalism itself. Uh, so even from the late 19th century, you and and there are stories. I mean, you can actually have accounts of where and how this view came up, because there was also I I would strongly insist that the Orientalist scholarship of European scholars of the 19th century, which discovers, of course, through uh, particularly through the study of languages, this whole idea of the Indo-Aryan language group, right? And this supposedly racial affinity between the Aryans, who were both in India as well as in Europe, and a kind of uh, racial connection that began to be made of a sort of civilizational unity. You know, this sort of idea was very, very influential in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Indian intellectuals who begin to imagine uh, an Indian nation, right? And, and the ancientness is something that is brought home to them it's not just simply the traditional uh, scholarship, which, of course, a large part of it was uh, the corpus of Sanskrit uh, uh, works, which which were continued to be studied in in different branches of uh, you know traditional knowledge. But the idea that this Sanskrit corpus is of the same uh, value or worth as uh, Greek and Roman uh, civilization, you see. And that is what made this so attractive, this idea so attractive, that to claim that India as a nation is as old and as uh, noble, right, as the European nations. And that brings home to these Indian uh, nationalists uh, raises this question, well, if we were such a great nation, then how is it that we are today in this subject position where we are dominated and ruled by an, a foreign power? And this raises the whole um, problem of, of nationalism itself. What, what is the national project then? You know, so the idea finally emerges that the national project must be to seek political independence from uh, the colonial power. So uh, when you say that um, this idea of, uh, of the ancientness of the nation, this is not simply something that you know, Hindutva or Hindu right-wing politicians have uh, created. This is something which has been around much longer, and, and I would say it, it almost uh, dominates the intellectual uh, formation of modern India, uh, that there is this long continuity, uh, which is why 
in this particular uh, manuscript, uh, just as there is the chapter which is called India is not a Hindu Rashtra, which of course directly criticizes and challenges the claims of you know people like Savarkar and Golwalkar, right? Uh, it, it that chapter is followed by a chapter which is called India is not a pluralist secular democracy, uh, where the argument is made precisely this argument that even when the claim is made that India actually consists of you know different uh, groups of people, and so it is pluralist. There is no one single uh, group that is given privilege, right? Uh, and yet, there is necessarily a sense as long as soon as this idea of a deep history going back to ancient times is produced, it necessarily, it necessarily uh, converges with this idea of, uh, of the ancient empires. The, and these ancient empires are principally North Indian empires. Uh, with a cultural history going back all the way to the Indus uh, civilizations, right? Indus and then, you know, the two Indus both, if you take the uh, later discovery of the uh, Harappa uh, civilization and, and then the, um, the Vedic, right? Uh, regionally slightly apart, but all focused on that North India Gangetic, Indo-Gangetic plane. Right, uh, and so that is necessarily given a certain priority, and so even uh, the the uh, the book actually makes this argument that even when one says India is a pluralist and secular democracy, there is a privilege given to the sort of North Indian Hindi-speaking male citizen who is seen to be, as it were, the original inhabitant and hence the original Indian, and all the others are somehow given a place. But they don't necessarily belong. They are not the originals, right? So there is a certain inherent priority given to this um, idea of the of, of ancient India. So as soon as you, you, you attribute a deep history, a deep past, to the, to the Indian nation, you will get into this problem. So one of the crucial arguments that this, this book begins with is to say that all nations are actually modern, right? And so you, you, you cannot and you, you must not insist on this deep past of a nation because in a sense, as I have uh, described then in the following chapters of this book, describes it, that different states of India have very different histories of how they are included within the uh, within the Indian Union, there were many uh, parts which were never uh, they were not part of British India, right? I mean, how how what is the deep history that links let's say Goa or Sikkim uh, with the rest of India? Politically, they were never part of, of of India, and yet they come in. All the princely states, how did they go come in, right? The northeast, the northeast has a very different relationship. It's entirely because of certain, um, you know, strategic uh, moves of the, of the British colonial power, then that areas like Nagaland and Mizoram and so on become part of the Assam hill states, right? 
there is no deep history of association there at all with the rest of India. But they are, they are yet they are they are part of India. So all of the people of those places are have to be given equal respect and an equal place within the Indian Federation. You cannot do that if one insists on a deep history of the Indian nation. Right. Uh, but this problem of deep history, as is being articulated for a while now, um, is ultimately suggesting that the Vedic civilization was one where, um, which was a cradle of civilizations elsewhere in the world. So not just the one for India, but Sanskrit as, uh, of course, it's a, it's a sort of quasi-linguistic philological argument that Sanskrit is the mother language that gives birth to other languages and so on and so forth. Um, but Tarba clearly says that that's not possible. And then can you elaborate a bit on that myth-busting element? Well, you see, the main uh, argument there is the two things. And one can go into, so there is there, there is a whole philological argument, right, uh, which where, where most sort of philologists would certainly disagree with the idea that Sanskrit is the mother of, of, of the European languages. There, this, is, this is simply not credible at all. Uh, there is this other very important question of the priority between of uh, Sanskrit in relation to the uh, what are called the Dravidian languages. Uh, and uh, there is absolutely no question that even Sanskrit as we know it, right, uh, as Sanskrit develops, there is, there is Sanskrit itself also has a history. I mean, Vedic Sanskrit is not quite as what what comes more formalized Panini kind of uh, you know organized uh, grammar Sanskrit, which is the the, the standard Sanskrit. Uh, but but for instance, the whole argument about the uh, retro retroflex uh, uh, words, the you know uh, letters, uh, alphabets, uh, the murdhanya. Right, so the ta ta da da, those words, those are clearly from Dravidian sources or Bundari uh, sources, which enter Sanskrit, right? Because none of the other in so-called Indo-Aryan, uh, you know, yeah, the the uh, Aryan family of languages, European languages, do not have those those terms. Uh, Persian, uh, in the classical Persian, does not have any of the Murdhana. So the idea that Sanskrit is the uh, mother of those languages it's, is, is, becomes very difficult to sustain. I don't think that is a very serious argument to be, to be taken uh, notice of. I think what is much more interesting is the way in which the later histories of what become vernacular uh, languages of India, uh, so through Apabrangsa and uh, Prakrit languages, uh, the relation between Sanskrit and bracket languages, where, of course, there is a hierarchy and the hierarchy is sustained in Sanskrit literature itself. If you go into Sanskrit Kavya, uh, you know, Sanskrit plays, for instance, you, you will have, you know, very often women characters or uh, lower class characters who do not speak Sanskrit, yeah. right? They will speak in some bracket language, right? <laughs> and, <clears throat> It's only the men and the gods who will speak uh, Sanskrit, right? Uh, now that hierarchy is very much, very much part of this culture. What is interesting is what happens through the period of, uh, especially the so-called bhakti, bhakti 
uh, movement period when all over india you basically get the rise of the vernacular as the more uh, widely used literary language literary beginning of course in the oral sense because a lot of the bhakti literature is oral it's only later written down in writing but then through that period you know in different parts of india at different times i mean tamil has a much older history uh, of becoming a literary language in itself uh, in south many of the south indian languages are are older in the in the form in terms of their formation but e- even in northern and eastern india uh, the rise of uh, of the so called regional languages through the you know 12 13 14 15 centuries all the way through with the bhakti literature as the most important uh, literary form right uh, which is sung which is in in festivals in congregations and then of course compiled and put down in terms of right written texts that becomes clearly the much more widely spoken and widely used literary language than sanskrit right uh, and uh, and in a sense produces what would later become a kind of more democratic cultural base for the formation of literary of regional cultures so you you will get distinct literary regional cultures like maithili has a re- regional culture bhojpuri will have a regional culture bengal assam odisha and you can go on uh, you know each of these language based regional language based uh, literary culture uh, emerges through this period i would say this is no no not older than you know 5 6 700 years possibly right uh, that is actually becomes much and sanskrit in a sense becomes a you could even say a dead language in in many ways uh, it, it there is a classical corpus which continues to but nothing new really emerges in sanskrit all the new all that is new emerges in the various regional languages in the right and that i think is a very important once again it raises this whole question of if in fact there is a single entity called the indian nation how old this is the only way you can insist on that is to insist on the ancientness of sanskrit and the and the continued dominance of sanskrit as the unifying uh, feature but this is clearly not true you know that unifying nature of sanskrit that sanskrit is after all only practiced after a point of time only practiced by a very very tiny literary elite right uh, scholarly elite which is of course almost entirely exclusively brahmin uh, uh, and that is the group that keeps sanskrit as a and most of these people remember they would actually speak some other language they only use sanskrit as the language of scholarly communication right they sanskrit was is never an ordinary language uh, of 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 any any group of people right they all had they were either tamil speakers or bengali speakers or gujarati speakers or whatever uh, and used sanskrit as the medium of uh, exchange of you know for scholarly 
for literary purposes. Uh, this is not true of the regional languages. The regional languages emerge as living languages of the people. And there was a punitive ang- um, underlining factor to that. So, for example, in Orisha, we have a like host of Dalit authors from a very early age, the Sharola Dashas and the Boloram Dashas. And there's this idea that, of course, we know it from their own writing that... Um, they had accidentally spoken or commented on a Sanskrit discussion amongst Vedantins and then had to spend the night uh, punished by the king. So, you know, there's, so that, so of course is there, yes. Um, But yes, I mean, uh, coming back to this idea that um, we left, um, just touched upon briefly on the idea of borders. Um, And why is it that, how, how all borders are, accidental and why is it that Burma which was originally part of British India is not but Sikkim is um, so what what does Starbucks say about border making again as I said that these are these are simply accidents of history uh, you know why one there was it is completely feasible even within the, you know the British policy and so on it could have easily have happened that in 1935 the British may have decided well Burma will continue to be in India it, it could easily have happened. Indian nationalists had almost nothing to do with with that decision. Uh, as I said, Burma, there were what become what was then the federal council, sort of like the the earlier version of the Indian Parliament then uh, under the uh, 1919 Act uh, that had uh, seats for Burma. They were they were elected representatives from Burma on that on that on that council. Thirty five. There is the decision. One, when you have the provincial ministries, that Burma will be separated out and become a separate crown colony. Uh, so that that is an accident of you know of British policy. Why, and I, I, you know, this book they, the, there are discussions of why Ceylon was not part of India. It could easily have been. So there is you know geographically it's like you know just what it's, and and think of. The, the long, long history of relations between, you know, cultural relations, political relations between uh, Ceylon and the southern parts of India. I mean, this is continuous. Why is the Andaman Islands part of India? There is absolutely no historical or cultural reason for it to have been so, and yet it is. And there are people there. Um, and, and that has a very, very uh, difficult history. The indigenous people of Andaman who have virtually disappeared, right? Uh, and settlers from the mainland. Uh, many of them were uh, prisoners of, 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 the, of the colonial uh, state. Uh, and, yet, and now Andaman and Nicobar Islands are part of India. Uh, so what would be the place of the people of those uh, if, you, if you insist on a deep history? Uh, uh, and then you have Portuguese colonies, you have the French colonies, uh, Goa is particular. Uh, so all of these have very, why is Kashmir, why was Kashmir not a part of British India? It could, Kashmir was sold off, as you know. British, it, it was British territory because the, the, the uh, uh, Punjab, the Sikh uh, kingdom, Having been defeated, uh, it, it, had, it had ceded those those parts of uh, of of then uh, Sikh kingdom. 
Jammu and Kashmir should have been part of British India. It wasn't. It was sold off to the Dogra uh, general, uh, so Gulab Singh. So uh, and so Kashmir develops a very different political history, as you know. I mean, even today, that is a, a difficult, uh, controversial history. Uh, so each of these cases, these borders, the definition of the borders is completely, and if you think of the border with China, uh, which is so much of a problem, uh, it is it is a complete historical accident that the borders were defined by the British on maps in a certain way. They were never delineated on the ground, right? And, and that confusing uh, situation continues today. Uh, in for a region where there are no people, there is no vegetation, there is nothing but but solid rock and ice, uh, and and uh, of course even today, uh, you know, soldiers are, are fighting each other and, and uh, uh, being killed uh, over over this kind of border. Uh, so you know, there is nothing. So one of the things I think that uh, Charvak is doing here is demystifying uh, this idea of national borders, territorial borders, that these are, these are, there's nothing sacred about these, uh, these, uh, you know, drawing lines on, on a map. Uh, absolutely nothing sacred about it at all. And um, I just vaguely, talking about maps, remembered a line in Black Hole of Empire about how this idea that in a cartographic line, you have sovereignty is very new too. Yes. Emerick Vettel. I, I, it's, yes. It's... Yes. You see, this is also very, as you know, I mean, traditionally the idea that you can draw a map, uh, a line on a map and say this side, I am sovereign and that side you are sovereign. This is a very modern European notion. There was never this idea of you know, complete, total control of all resources uh, and people defined within within geographical lines, right? In any pre-modern political imagination, it just simply did not happen. Traditionally, yes, of course, kings claimed, asserted a certain uh, right over a certain territory. But what that did that right mean? It could mean extraction of tribute. It could have meant extraction of some kind of revenues or taxes, right? Uh, it it almost never meant complete control over the lives of all inhabitants within that geographical area, complete control over all resources within the geographical area. There was no state, no ruler who ever claimed those kinds of what we now call sovereignty, right? This is a European innovation. It's, you know, in Europe, 17th, 18th century, this idea of sovereignty develops. And along with European colonial uh, territories in the, in, in outside Europe, right? So it is French possessions in, in, let us say, India or Africa in relation to British possessions in Africa, in relation to Dutch possessions in Africa or wherever else. That is where those lines again get drawn, right? All these maps of India, which we know from the 18th, 19th centuries, these are British maps where the British are drawing their territorial uh, jurisdiction 
in relation not to Indian states. They are, uh, they are defining their jurisdiction in relation to French possessions, in relation to Dutch possessions. That is where the lines are being drawn. These are all imperial maps. Right? Right. And then, uh, can you just quickly, now that we are on the topic of maps, there's one very interesting line in Charbak's narration where he says that, and this is, of course, a bit about Kashmir because, you know, Kashmir is something that's um, the predicaments, uh, not the predicaments, the obsession to possess Kashmir is uh, of the Indian states so much. But you, um, but Charbak says something interesting is that Kashmir's history on what transpired should be studied in conjunction to Hyderabad. And only then will that make sense. Uh, that's a very new way of looking at that concept of princely republic and so on and so forth. So could you... So, you see, uh, this, is, this is not a new uh, claim at all. Because uh, even for sort of major national leaders of the time, like Nehru, especially Patel, uh, who was closely involved in, especially in dealing with the, with the princely states... Uh, that it, it, Kashmir and Hyderabad were the, were the two parallel cases, right? Uh, where in, in Kashmir, you had a Hindu ruler and a state where the majority of the population was Muslim. In Hyderabad, you had a Muslim ruler and the majority of the population was Hindu, right? In both of these cases, you were having a, a question about the, the ruler is uncertain what to do, precisely because of the nature of the demography. Okay, and they were unwilling and reluctant and hesitant. And the the history moves in such a way that in the case of Kashmir, the ruler finally says that, yes, you you know, I will join India. And and a certain negotiation uh, takes place. There there is, as we know, intervention from, from Pakistan, at this point of time, and then there is inter- international uh, intervention, and there is a ceasefire, right? There is a certain, and the claim is, uh, let there be a plebiscite, let the people decide. In the case of Hyderabad, it was exactly the same, that the Hyderabad ruler was hesitant, unwilling to join, right? Uh, and in the end, it was, it was the Indian rulers, like... Uh, Patel and, and other Indian leaders who insisted that there be a, a, a plebiscite, right? And of course, the Nizam of Hyderabad was unwilling to have the plebiscite because it was a foregone conclusion that the people of Hyderabad would choose to join India. In the case of Kashmir, and this is where the matter is interesting, had there been a plebiscite in, say, let's say, 1948 or 49 or whenever, would the people have joined India or Pakistan? It's not certain at all. Because, as we know, the situation was complicated by the position of Sheikh Abdullah and the National Conference, which was very closely tied, aligned with the Indian National Congress. right? And um, Abdullah and the uh, National Conference, they had very solid support in the Kashmir Valley. But not in the other, not in the north, not in the other regions where where national conference did not have that support. And so, more or less along the line of control as it now exists, right, 
in the areas, let's say, in the north, in uh, Gilgit, uh, Muzaffarabad, you know, that, that sort of area, even then there was much strong support for joining Pakistan. Whereas in clearly in, in, in much of Jammu and the Kashmir Valley, the, the people would have probably have uh, wanted to join India. But this, the outcome was could not have been very certain. And so as, you, as we all know, in the end, there was no, no plebiscite was, was never held, right? But if you compare the Hyderabad and Kashmir uh, cases, if you think of the kinds of concessions the Indian government was prepared to make to the Hyderabad Nizam in order for Hyderabad to join, it was far more than was ever conceded to Kashmir. In the end, it didn't happen because finally, of course, the Indian army simply went in and, and took over, right? right? Uh, and one very crucial thing that people often forget with the uh, integration of the Indian states as well as the integration of uh, states like Goa and so on uh, was that in 1949-50-51, the Congress, as a political organization, was completely dominant over all of these states, right, except for Kashmir, right, so that irrespective of how these various parts came into India and what were the specific terms and concessions that were given to each of these states for them to join the India, there were all kinds of special provisions, right? Article 371, which still exists, right, was put in there to accommodate states like Mysore, uh, Travancore, Cochin, right? They all wanted special uh, terms and they were conceded, which is why 371 was there. In the 1951 elections, once the Congress had ministries in all of these states, right, they all accepted the Indian constitution in Toto and did not want any special uh, terms, except for Kashmir, which did not have a Congress ministry, and which insisted that the, the terms that had been conceded by in under Article 370 for Kashmir should continue. And that is the history of why 370 continued. Uh, so, you know, these are uh, instances of, as I was saying, the, the very different terms under which different parts of India came into the union, right? These traces are there, even in the body of the constitution, they are there, right? Politically, they were all managed because the Congress, as the leading political party, was dominant in all of these places, except for Kashmir, right? That is why politically, despite all of these differences, they all were brought together under the umbrella of the same constitution, right? right. Except if we yeah, continue no, with that special provision. 
Yeah, and the um, Hyderabad um, um, Nizam had absurd demands. Absurd demands that were almost going to get um, accepted, including one that had straight railway line that would connect him to a port. And yeah, and then um, yes, so um, so let me come to that um, two important uh, sort of chapters, which is India is not a Hindu Rashtra. Um, and then where we discuss political biographies of important figures. And as you know, Savarkar is the flavor of the season. Um, so w- what is Starbucks take on uh, the forerunners of Hindu nationalism? Uh, well, there's no particular... See, one, of course, is the whole biographical question of Savarkar. Uh, I think one of the interesting uh, approaches in Charvak is that he does not begin to question uh, Savarkar's uh, patriotism, as many many critics do, uh, because Charvak makes the uh, point that uh, Savarkar was a very major figure in the uh, revolutionary movement um, in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, he was regarded as such as a very crucial leader of this movement by the British themselves, of course, and and in the end he was in in prison in in uh, in the Andamans. Uh, more in, interestingly, I think there is a an argument made in in uh, in, in Charvak's manuscript uh, about uh, Savarkar's history of the eighteen seven revolt uh, as one in which both Hindus and Muslims uh, make equal sacrifices and participate equally um, in that revolt, right? It is during his uh, period in in the Andamans uh, and especially with the rise of Gandhi's mass movement, I think that is where Savarkar, according to this uh, manuscript, uh, Savarkar seems to have a very uh, radical shift in his political project. And in a sense, it is not so much the British power which is uh, more important for him. He almost uh, seems to have made up his mind that the British will leave at some point of time, right? What would happen? What would be India like once the British leave? And that is where he regards the whole Gandhian movement as the main enemy, as the big danger. And that danger is the danger of pacifism. It's the danger of being re- remaining weak, weak towards those who, and very interestingly, uh, in all of. Savarkar's retelling of Indian history and he has a huge corpus of writing which most people outside Maharashtra do not even know because much, much of it is in Marathi. You know, it, he has poetry, he has uh, drama, huge uh, corpus. And there the he usually uh, portrays this as the danger that Buddhism represented in history. Right? Buddhism with this message of universal brotherhood, with this message of nonviolence, that is what Savarkar always regarded as the big danger. 
for Indian Indian polity because that would make India weak. Uh, and so that becomes a new form in which this whole Hindutva idea is developed. Very interestingly, Hindutva as developed in Savarkar is not religion at all. He makes a clear distinction. Hindutva is a political ideology. It has nothing to do with religion. And Savarkar himself, in terms of his own claims of religion, openly calls himself, he's an atheist, he's thoroughly against caste distinctions. Uh, his idea of what this Hindu nation would be like uh, was very different from, let's say, the the kind of uh, Hindutva that is preached by, uh, for instance, Yogi Adityanath. It's, it's a very different notion. It, you know, Sanatani Hindu or Vishwa Hindu Parishad, for instance. You know, Sanatan Hinduism is completely not what Savarkar thought of as Hindutva. It has nothing to do with it. Right? It was a completely politically based argument. Where are your political, fundamental political loyalties? Is the political loyalty towards this land, right, which he calls Pitribhumi, uh, Pitribhumi, so towards this fatherland? That is what defines your political loyalty, your political allegiance. And if you have that political allegiance, you are a genuine member of the nation. You are a citizen. If not, those who do not have that loyalty cannot be part of the nation. Right. And then uh, Savarkar's own sort of... um association okay so let me rephrase this question this way so would charbak say uh, i mean he already says that or they already say that uh, india is not a hindu rashtra but would he say that we are living in one now are we living in a hindu rashtra now today yes well i i think the the argument that is being made is that there is a project uh, a political project which is of that of hindu rashtra that project of Hindu Rashtra takes the form of a centralized, a, a centralized polity, where of course there is the figure of of the great leader, uh, which takes prominence. But I think Charvak makes the very interesting connection between uh, this sort of hegemonic project, ideological project. I'm using terms which Charvak yeah. not, used. not used by Charvak. Yes. <laughs> So uh, um, between between this kind of project and the social forces, which uh, um, which support that project, and in terms of that social project, I think the the argument is made that there are certain all India classes, especially the all India business class, you know, the big capitalist classes, and the upper middle classes, the urban middle classes, professional middle classes. That is the strongest support for a centralized India. Because they, they, they are, their interests, their economic uh, and professional interests are completely tied to the idea of a single country where they can move freely from one place to another, capital can move freely from one place to another, Interestingly, it's not so much that capital moves, right? But 
the unevenness of this space called India, the economic space, right? And you have these growth regions. So you have regions like Gujarat and Maharashtra and, and, and Karnataka, right? And Tamil Nadu, growth regions. Uh, and you have the backward regions, which is the supply of cheap labor. And in a sense, that is the reason why this present uh, centralized political form is is most conducive for the all India classes because they can focus, they can concentrate on these growth regions where they are located, and yet the supply of cheap labor is ensured from the backward regions of UP, Bihar, Bengal, Odisha, and so on. Okay, uh, and that is 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 according to the argument here, a very strong sort of material support to the ideological project, right? Now, the what is the opposition to it? The opposition to it is coming from the various regional political parties. Uh, so you have DMK, you have the CPM, you have uh, Trinamool Congress, right? Uh, you have various regional, uh, maybe Telugu Desam, maybe... Um, Telangana, right? Uh, but but all of these regional oppositions, uh, these parties, they are they are necessarily bound within the sort of tactical requirements of electoral politics, which they cannot succumb. They cannot go over over, you know. So they remain their their uh, politics remains bound within those kinds of electoral considerations and the considerations of if there is an all India, uh, you know, coalition of oppositions, who will be the leader, which party gets more, you know, who is, who has greater advantage, those kinds of things. And you can easily see that uh, these regional parties won't be able to uh, tide over these kinds of limits, right? So I think the claim that Charvak is making is that just as Hindutva or the claim of Hindu Rashtra has had this long uh, period of ideological and cultural uh, growth, right? A project which has uh, produced through various channels, cultural channels and political channels, a, 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 a strong narrative of what the country is, what the nation is, and what the nation should be, right? One requires an equally sustained and coherent narrative on the other side, right? And that, the uh, the basic claim that Tarvak is making, that the narrative can come from projecting the idea of a just federation of the people, of, right? a just federation. And just federation would include, I think if I remember right, sort of two, two or three conditions, right? It says uh, that each state has a different history of its inclusion within the nation and those differences must, must be respected. Second, that each state, therefore, is yeah, has a different character, but 
they must have an equal status, right? They must have equal respect. Uh, and third, uh, I think the, the, I'm forgetting now what the, uh, oh, that the people must have priority over the state, right? So it is not the uh, interests of the continuity of the state that will t- must take precedence. The precedence must be the wishes and needs of the people, right? If the state machinery needs to be changed and modified, so be it. But because the priority must be that of the people. I think that becomes, or is the suggestion is, that those three conditions can be the foundation for a an alternative intellectual and cultural vision uh, of what India can be, of the Indian nation should be, right? Uh, and that is not simply a matter of electoral politics. It, it, it is a much, much broader cultural project. Yeah. Right. As we are nearing the hour, I would not keep you long, but my last question on the book would be about a bit about Ambedkar because there's a lengthy uh, discussion on um, Fule Ambedkar and their, uh, the Marathi cultural sort of revival and its contribution to this modern nation. And um, how, uh, how does Charbak see that in the fruition well, in, of this tree? As you would have noticed in the book, uh, Ambedkar is, uh, there is an invocation of Ambedkar in several chapters. Uh, and I think the more interesting ones, you know, the one on the constitution and so on, that's relatively well known. Uh, but I think the interesting invocation is in on the question of language, the, uh, the role, the position of different states within the language. Ambedkar's claim that uh, there should be mono, monolingual states, right? But States must necessarily be roughly of equal size. You know, there is a viability argument that that Ambedkar used. That you must have viable states, and the viable states meant that they must not be so large that they will dominate other states, because that will go against the principle of just federation. On the other hand, they must not be so small and uh, lacking resources in such a way that they will become dependent on the center, right? Perennially dependent on the center. That also is not appropriate for a just federation. So it is balancing those uh, different considerations that one can have a just federation. I think that is one of the most interesting, I found the most one of the most interesting uses of Ambedkar's uh, arguments uh, for this kind of book. Otherwise, of course, you know, Ambedkar on, on caste and Ambedkar on the, uh, the need for, um, let's say, Dalits to be treated as minorities with uh, special constitutional guarantees and so on. Those are relatively well known and clearly extremely relevant. Lots of people have been making that argument about Ambedkar. But I think Ambedkar on the question of uh, linguistic states is is a particularly interesting uh, use uh, here. Right. So I guess we'll wrap up. I, I don't know where an hour went. I wish we had more time, <laughs> but I'm so glad that you could join us. And uh, so my last two questions, not about the book, is 
what are your future projects are you in search of more manuscripts by charbak or are you no <laughs> for the moment as you know i have retired from uh, you know professional academic life i retired from my calcutta position many years ago i also retired from columbia uh, last year um i think i will um i will now have more time to devote to as <laughs> Charva could say to intellectual cultural projects rather than <laughs> <laughs> professional academic projects. So let us see. I will. Uh, uh, and one quick question is: Did you face um, while publishing this manuscript more pushback from South Asian publishers on certain no, not things? Really. Okay. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't have had that problem because, of course, Permanent Black is uh, has been my publisher for many years, so and there was no problem there too. What is interesting is the. Uh, the immediate uh, um, reception in terms of translations. There is a Bengali translation which has already appeared. There is a Tamil and Malayalam translation of this book which is on, on in, in press now. It should appear in the next two or three months. Uh, and uh, Hindi and Marathi is also under preparation. So I think by next year we'll have at least five or six translations of this book. Wow, that is that is beautiful and the book is so lucid in what it tells us about nationalism i, I really hope everybody reads it yeah. and uh, except in the us i i believe you know that is priced very high yeah. yeah i think yeah. so it's a very high price yeah uh, i hopefully it will be in paperback or in cheaper kindle edition <laughs> yeah. really soon and um, okay, so to end the interview on a slightly lighter note, uh, from my past association um, in center and reading Black Hole of Empire, are you looking forward uh, to the World Cup? <laughs> <laughs> see, see the, as far as cricket is concerned, uh, this... T20 form of quick cricket is not something I enjoy very much. No, the football world cup. But the football world cup, I am totally invested. Okay. And uh, yes, although it will be a very new location, I have no idea what it will be like. Yeah. And are you hopeful that Brazil can lift the world cup again? Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that note, thank you, Professor Chatterjee, and um, for joining us today. I'll just stop the recording. Thank you.